we get started, I want to just ask you how your discussions went this last week. Uh, remember, I told you how important it was not to let this topic die on Sunday. And I encourage you to have conversations with your spouse, with small groups. And uh, we met with a small group this week, and that's exactly the way they started the time. <clears throat> was talking about what we visited uh, together about on Sunday. And uh, I would encourage all of us to continue that commitment, to have this conversation beyond what takes place on Sunday morning. It's just way too important to let the topic die uh, on a Sunday. And so please uh, make a point to do that. And remember, we're in this thing together, right? Uh, everybody has something to learn, so please uh, be committed to that. As we continue our study, it's important as we go along to always have the big picture in mind. There's a real necessity to, to build on the foundation of why God created marriage in the first place. Because this understanding is what determines our, our motivations for our actions and protects us from working real hard on our marriage for all the wrong reasons. And that's possible. And so I want you to understand the, the foundation. As we talked about last Sunday, in the beginning, God created male and female in the image of His perfect fellowship. That relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We talked about how there's no need inherent within that fellowship of the Trinity. But when you and I were created, we were in fact created with a need to be in fellowship with God. So in that sense, we were created out of fellowship and for the purpose of fellowship with Him. But we also learned that we were created to be in relationship with one another as well, right? We read that passage that said, it's not good for man to be alone. And one of the reasons for that is that isolation breeds selfishness. And selfishness is what prevents us from seeing our need for God. We, when we're left to ourselves, wrongly assume that we can do this on our own. And that's not true. And so God works through relationships that we have with one another to reveal the sin in our heart that separates us from Him. It's a gift of grace. And there's no relationship more powerful and, and effective in doing that, revealing the sin and selfishness in our heart, than the marriage relationship. But all relationships possess the power to change us. And just to, as a side note here, and to give you an example of how these principles apply to all of us, no matter where we're at, we used that point in a conversation that Terry and I had with our boys this past week. And we talked about that that statement and said that's the reason that we encourage you and urge you to choose your friends wisely because all relationships have the power to change you and it's just a matter of where they change you for something good or they change you for something evil something destructive and i use the analogy uh with graham who uh, understood this and, and i said it's kind of like nuclear power <laughs> So nuclear power and the energy produced is a good thing. And when it's controlled and protected, it's the most <clears throat> effective tool that we possess on earth to produce power. But in that same light, when used for the wrong purposes, in the wrong hands, it's the most destructive force on earth. And so the same is true in our relationships with one another. They all possess the same power. It's just a matter of whether it's used for good or used for destruction. And you need to choose wisely who you relate with in that manner. 
Well, as we learned, the marriage relationship possesses that power and God has elevated and ordained it to have priority over all other relationships. One man, one woman, uniquely created from one another and for one another. Equal in value, but distinct in purpose. And this is the the foundational relationship in the creative order from which all other relationships would then originate. And although marriage was created before the fall, I am increasingly under the, the conviction that it was created for the fall. Built within the design of the marriage relationship is God's most vivid portrayal of His redeeming love. As I mentioned last week, marriage and the gospel explain one another. And so appreciating the the magnitude of this purpose helps us understand the great lengths that God has gone to to instruct and to guide and to protect that which He has created. And that's what we'll look at together this morning as we talk through what it means to make a covenant promise, a promise of future love. So before we do that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do ask that... uh, Your Spirit softens our heart. I know that we come with all kinds of predispositions and things that have a tendency to cause us to be defensive, to bristle, to become hardened. But we pray that Your Spirit works among us in such a way that we become soft, receptive, that we have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that You desire for us this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. And I want us to look together in verse 31 because what I want to do is make a connection between what we talked about last week in Genesis to what Paul then unpacks a little more in the New Testament uh, passages. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. He says, beginning in verse 31. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and they and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It says this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You see, in, in, in verse 31, Paul looks back to that passage we examined last week in Genesis 2.24 reciting what God ordained in the creation of marriage where a man is to leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and to become one flesh. And he says, and that is a great mystery. That term, great mystery, is better translated, there is a profound truth hidden here. And then he tells us what the the truth is. He says, I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so what he's saying here is within that union of marriage, there is a profound truth that is intended to reflect the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. You see, the covenant relationship of marriage was originally designed with an image of the new covenant relationship of Christ and the church. And that is a profound truth. When you think about it, the gospel helps us understand what God originally intended for the marriage relationship. 
And the marriage relationship helps us understand the depth of the love that's at the heart of the gospel. That's a profound truth. And we should think about that. And just kind of see how that unfolds a little bit. If you would, flip over to Philippians. Uh, just the next uh, book over, Philippians chapter 2. Familiar passage that we've actually looked at before in our study of Philippians. But let me read beginning in verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, just as we are called to model in our marriages, we see in the, in the life of Christ that He gave up His own personal rights in order to accomplish a greater good for the objects of His love, you and I. Mark 10.45 says that He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He willingly gives His life in submission to the will of the Father so that through His sacrifice on the cross, He could make a way for us to be in a relationship with Him through the forgiveness of sins. He who had authority over all things. Remember, we looked at that in Colossians. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That One, Jesus Christ, humbled Himself, emptied Himself to be a sacrifice as a demonstration of His love for us. And we come to know that love as we are united with Him through faith. If you're in Philippians still, go back to verse 1 of that chapter 2. I'm going to read it from the NIV because I like the way it communicates this message. It says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, the point here is that when you are united with Christ, that there are certain things that then become known to you that were previously unknown. Things like the comfort of His love, the fellowship of His Spirit, the tenderness and compassion of His forgiveness and grace. It is a relationship that is held together, secured by His promise. You know that passage in Romans. It says that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. No height, nor depth, no angels, nor demons, things above, things below, things on earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He humbled Himself, submitting to the will of the Father, giving up His own rights in order to demonstrate His love for us. And that love is held secure in a covenant promise. And Scripture tells us, look to that example and live that truth in your marriage. And may your marriage display that truth to the world. You kind of get in the picture here? It is a profound truth. Knowing this profound truth then, does it not make sense that God would go to great lengths to help us understand its significance, to give us instruction on how to live it out, and then to protect it within a covenant promise. See, I believe that God 
designed and set apart the marriage relationship to ultimately be protected within a binding commitment of a covenant promise. Just as we see evidence in his relationship with us in that new covenant promise that he made to the church. In order to to show you that that's God's perspective, I want to look at an Old Testament passage. It's the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So if you would, go ahead and turn to to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. To give you a little background of the context of this passage, uh, the unfortunate reality for the Israelites at this point in time is that the men, having been married for some time, were making choices to divorce what the text says, the wife of their youth. So the one that they had originally married, they are now divorcing to marry someone different. And I want you to see what God's perspective is of what's happening. It says in verse 13 of chapter 2, And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because you no longer, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? And here's the answer. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against you, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife, how? By covenant. By covenant. See, the Israelites stood under God's judgment because they did not honor the covenant promise that they ultimately made to God in the protection of the marriage relationship that He created. See, just as the new covenant promise separates and protects the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church, so does the marriage covenant promise protect the relationship between a husband and a wife. And to better understand the quality of that promise, let's make a comparison. If you'll think back to a comment that I made last week, I suggested that in our world today, marriage has become known more as a contract between two people for personal growth, personal security, personal satisfaction. It really has turned into be something that's more about me than it is about us. But a contract and a covenant are altogether different. See, a covenant is made essentially to eliminate exceptions. A contract is made to build them in. A covenant is made for the benefit of the relationship. A contract is made for the protection of an individual. We see this played out in our world around us. It's a normal part of our function as we relate to each other in covenants Many times we see this in business. I don't know if Brandon's here this morning, but I'm going to use him. There he is as an example. So Brandon's in the food service business. And Brandon, your desire is to form a relationship with your customers, right? You want to be in good standing with them so that they choose you for the services that they need at the restaurants that they own. They desire to, uh, uh, Brandon desires to have a relationship with them for the purpose of being able to be their vendor, essentially. And your customers, aren't they, are willing to be in that relationship with you as long as you, as their vendor, meet their needs at an acceptable price, right? But what happens if one of your competitors comes along and offers 
a better service at the same price, which knowing Brandon, that would not happen. But let's say that they offered the same service at a better price. Do your customers have any binding commitment to stay in that relationship with you? Absolutely not. Why? Because the need of the individual is more important than the need of the relationship. And I bet you've heard this more than one time, Brandon, that they say to you, Brandon, you're a nice guy. I really like you. But I've got to do what's best for my business. You've ever heard that before? Of course you have. Because the need of the individual is more important to the, than the relationship. But in a covenant, it's just the opposite. The need of the relationship is far more important than any one individual. The need of a relationship is far more important than the need of any one individual. Tim Keller takes the same idea and he applies it to marriage. And he says, you know, in our society, it would be unacceptable to all of us if a parent decided one day to abandon their child because it just wasn't rewarding anymore. That, that it was too hard. We would look at that and say, that's not right. And I'm suggesting, based upon the covenant promise relationship as it's described in Scripture, the same should be true for marriage. It's not right. And it's not okay to leave your spouse because they're no longer meeting your needs. Or it requires too much effort. Or you think you found a better product somewhere that doesn't cost you quite as much. That's a contract, not a covenant. And you didn't sign a contract. You made a covenant promise. And I want you to understand that when we talk about that covenant promise, that it was made first to God. That covenant promise was made first to God. And to show you what I mean, let's just go back to the wedding ceremony. Okay? we will all recognize what I'm going to share with you as being familiar, especially if you're married, you've gone through this, but I don't know that we really appreciate what just happened when we go through that process. In a traditional wedding, the minister usually begins uh, with asking the bride and groom a, a series of questions. He'll ask something along the lines, will you take this woman to be your wife? Will you promise to love and honor her? Above all others, do you promise to live in accordance with, with God's commandments in the holy bond of marriage? Now, now let me ask you, the marriage is asking this question to the bride and groom whose anticipated response is, I will. And they're making a promise to somebody, but it's not the minister, is it? Who are they making the promise to? Who are they promising to obey to fulfill the commandments of the holy institute of marriage? God. They're making their promise to God, which is why we look at Malachi chapter 2 and, and see in that verse that that's the offense that God speaks of as He talks to the men of Israel and says, listen, I'm not accepting your sacrifice. And the reason is, is because when you divorce your spouse and break your promise to her, you first broke your promise to me. That's the covenant promise. But only after that do we then have an exchange of vows as bride and groom to one another. That's the second part. These two are familiar. When we said something to the effect of, of I, Todd, take you, Terry, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold 
from this day forward, <laughs> for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and in sickness and in health, until death do us part. You see, in a covenant commitment of marriage, there is a promise that is first made to God as the basis and the reason for the fulfillment of the promise that we make to our spouse. That's a covenant promise. Essentially, we're saying, because I've made a promise to God, this is now the commitment that I make to you. That's why I tell people who are in a crisis in their marriage, and I've said this more than one time, that no matter what's going on, if you haven't made an effort to reconcile, or if you're choosing to walk away uh, when there's no biblical grounds from divorce, you need to understand that you are first walking away from God before you ever walk away from your spouse. Because that's who you made your promise to first. And you need to understand the choice you're making. But I also want you to, to notice how when we speak those vows to each other as, as bride and groom, to be husband and wife, we're speaking of things yet future. Across the full spectrum of possibilities, right? For better, for worse. For richer, for poor. In sickness and in health. I don't just love you now. I promise to love you from now on. I promise to be loving. I promise to be faithful. I promise to be true and, and committed to this relationship. Regardless of changing feelings or, 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 or changing circumstances. This promise is important because it's what we fall back on when we quote, don't feel in love anymore. It wasn't based on feelings. It was based on a commitment that you first made to God that allows you to fulfill the promise that you then make to your spouse. If it were based on feelings, that's a contract, not a covenant. With that in mind, let me address what is a very common notion in our world today that would listen to everything that I just said and say, you, you know, I, I think that's true, but it really doesn't apply to two people who, who are genuinely in love with each other and committed to one another. In fact, they might even go as far as to say as, as I don't need a piece of paper to prove my love. In fact, our love is more liberating when it's not constricted by those legal requirements. And based on the statistics I gave you last week, you know that that's a very common notion in our world today. Well, if that's the perspective you have, then we need to go back to the vows because they're different. Okay? They're different when you look at a relationship between two people who are going to cohabitate compared to those who have committed themselves to marriage. I ran across an example of what those vows might look like and are not a fan study, and this is what you would need to say. Something along these lines. I, John, take you, Mary, to be my cohabitant, to have sex with and to share bills with. I'll be around while things are good, but I probably won't be if things get tough. If you should get a cold, I'll run to the drugstore for some medicine. But if you're to get sick to the point where you can no longer meet my needs, then I'll have to move on. Forsaking many others, I will be more or less faithful to you for as long as it feels good to me. If we should break up, it doesn't mean this wasn't special for me. I commit to live with you for as long as this works out. That's what the commitment is. Let's be honest. But I still know that there are people who are going to hear what I just said and said, that's not true. You don't know us. 
we really love each other. And my response is prove it. Get married. Because until you do, (laughs) what you're basically saying is, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. My personal freedom is more important than my personal sacrifice. That's not a covenant kind of love. And along those same lines, let me encourage you not to buy into the lie that it's okay for two people to be intimate with each other as long as they love one another. And I I bring this up because I remember being in high school. And I was young in my faith and I would hear that argument. And to be honest with you, I thought, that sounds kind of logical to me. I mean, marriage is based on love. So if they really love each other, then I think it's probably okay. But that's not true. Because ultimately, love is expressed not as an exercise of personal freedom, but in the discipline of self-restraint. Learning through marriage, we see that our deepest expression of our love is not necessarily the things that we do, but the things that we don't do. The things that we sacrifice for the benefit of, of the other. We see that in the love that Christ has for us. It's what he didn't do as he emptied himself, taking on the form of a man so that he could relate to us, sacrificing certain aspects so that we would have an understanding of what he's done. So we're called to do the same. Also important, and this is significant, expressing your love towards someone else in a way that opposes God's instruction, elevates that person over your love for God. And you know what that is? It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Greater love has no one than he who lays down his life for the one that they love. Putting aside their own interests to do what's right in the eyes of God. That is true love. That's what it looks like. So instead of restraining love, the covenant relationship is actually what sets love free. (laughs) Covenant promises don't inhibit love. They enhance love. In fact, I would even argue that a commitment short of that covenant level of promise will always cause people to hold things back because of self-protection. They're more inclined to to hide their flaws and and that might negatively impact the way the other person might feel about him. It's almost a perpetual state of dating where you're always putting your best foot forward, but you're never really letting them into the deepest parts of, of your life. Because in the absence of a covenant commitment, you're unwilling to expose your true self for fear that it may be more than they can handle and the commitment won't last. But a love that is not based on something that is fully known, is not really love. It's a passing emotion. Love without being fully known is not really love. It's a shallow emotion that is deeply inferior to a covenant kind of love. You remember when we looked at that Genesis 2.24 passage last week, it talked about, as we've already indicated in, in Ephesians, leave and cleave, become one flesh. You remember the next verse, verse 25, says that they were naked and unashamed. And, and I believe at the core, what that's intended to communicate is that they were fully known and truly, truly 
loved. That's a covenant kind of love. Someone who sees you at your worst and at your best. Who knows your strengths as well as your flaws. To be fully known and truly loved is the greatest love of all. And marriage is where God intends for that to exist. And the promise of a covenant is what protects it. In fact, as we've already mentioned, there is no greater demonstration of that quality of love than the love that Jesus Christ has for us, His bride, the church. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is clear. We were fully known and yet deeply and truly loved. Christ didn't die for us because we were lovely. (laughs) He died for us to make us lovely and to hold us secure in that inseparable covenant promise that lasts for all eternity. And as we know and I hope understand from our relationship with Christ, that quality of love is not restricting, it's liberating. Why? Because I don't have to prove my love to God. Because His love for me is not based on my performance. It is a covenant kind of love. He loves me no matter what. And His example is what we are called to model in our marriages. And so as we think about this, I want us to to take this last idea of following that model of His love and apply it to really all of our relationships. Okay, So this is all-inclusive, but primarily and most significantly to a relationship between a husband and a wife. And let me give you four qualities that I want us to look at together. Turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2 again. Philippians chapter 2. And I just want to read the the verses that just preceded the one I shared with you earlier in verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then it goes on to describe the example of what that looks like through the life of Christ. And so what I would suggest to you is that the first quality of love that we are called to have for one another is a self-sacrificing love. You see, when we talk about a sacrifice, what that does is it removes all conditional clauses and ultimatums so that we never in a covenant relationship tell each other, I'll love you if, or if, if you do this anymore, then, and I'm done. Because those aren't covenant promises. It's what it's saying is, I'm going to love you no matter what. The needs of the other is more important than your own. The second example that I want to give to you is in 1 John. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. Go to Revelation, turn left in case you need some directions. 1 John chapter 3. The first attribute is a self-sacrificing love, the desire to put the needs of the others more important than your own. And now look at uh, chapter 3, verse 16 in 1 John to see what it looks like to have a proven love. 
It says in verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Here again, we see the example of Christ and then the call for us to follow that example. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. To use the vernacular of our day, Actions speak louder than words. You know, I can tell my wife I love her, maybe go buy her flowers, drop them off at the house as I go do what I want to do. My actions just didn't validate my words. Again, out of self-sacrifice, I put aside the things that my, my, I might want to do to express to her my deepest commitment and love. And then my actions validate my words. This is a proven love. There's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll look at it. It's applied to wives, but really it's applicable to both husbands and wives. And it's talking about what you are to do in a situation where your spouse is not following Scripture. And it goes on to instruct the wife to live in a manner that his heart is one without a word spoken by the deeds and actions that you take. That's what it says. Winning the heart of another by what you do more than what you say. Self-sacrificed love. Self-sacrificing love. A a proven love. Now, turn to Colossians chapter 3. This is a passage that we looked at in our study. Last semester, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And it says... And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has complained against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Are you seeing a pattern here? That in every case it's saying, this is what it looks like as demonstrated in the life of Christ, now go do the same. This is what I call a never-quit kind of love. This is full commitment kind of love it makes me think of peter's question when he asked jesus how many times should i forgive my brother seven times thinking he was generous in other words how far should i go how how far should my love extend jesus's response basically says there is no limit to love if you want to know how to love someone then look at me and then go do the same when you see me quit you can quit too but you won't find it because it's a never quit kind of love Self-sacrificing, proven, committed, and finally, Hebrews chapter 9. This is significant. Turn there if you would. Hebrews chapter 9. Now this is talking about the covenant relationship that Jesus Christ has with us, his church. And I want you to listen to what he says, beginning in chapter 9, verse 15. It says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. The first thing I want you to notice is that that covenant relationship is a promise of future love. It speaks of an eternal inheritance, things yet to come. So that promise is being made, not just for how I feel right now, but what I'm committing to for all eternity. 
the other thing that is obvious in this passage is that to ratify the covenant, a death must take place. And we know in the example of Christ, that was his physical death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But when we apply that to our relationships in the covenant of marriage, we see that a death is required there as well. Dying to self. So that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that why? I could give myself for the needs of another. That's a covenant kind of love. As we think about this, I, I hope and pray. I was talking to a friend the other night who, out of the blue, called me. hadn't talked to him in months, and he is considering marriage, going through premarital counseling, and not even having heard this sermon, he said to me, Todd, I just realized the most amazing thing. I, I, we were getting some premarital counseling, and what they just shared with me was something I never knew before, and that is within the covenant of marriage is a picture of the love of Jesus Christ towards the church. And I said, absolutely, you've got it. And he says, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And that's the response we should have. Because then it helps us understand the extent that God goes to to help us protect what he's given us as such a tremendous blessing. But it also should help us understand that no matter how bad of a situation we're in, it is never, ever beyond his desire or ability to redeem. Why? Because there's too much at stake. Literally, the gospel is at stake. And God's desire is to make things new. So if you're in a crisis, you need to know that there is healing. If you're in a good place, you need to know it can be better. (laughs) But in both cases, the distinguishing characteristic is that you have allowed Christ to enter into your relationship. You have to give him access to your heart, to your life, to your marriage for it to ever be what he's designed it to be. Because the truth of the matter is, as you grow closer to him, you inevitably will grow closer to each other. In the same way, as you grow apart from him, you inevitably will grow apart from your spouse. It is a truth ingrained in the relationship of the marriage. Now, let me leave you this one question. This was brought to us last year, Terry and I, celebrated 20 years of marriage. And we went on a marriage getaway to uh, Glen Erie, the Navigator's headquarters in Colorado Springs. And uh, one of the sessions, they presented this question early on, and we kind of chewed on it through the entire time we were there. And the more we thought about it, the more significant it became. So I'm going to give it to you. I want you to write it down, and I want you to consider it this week. It's this. Is there a difference between two Christians who are married in a Christian marriage? Is there a difference between two Christians who are married and a Christian marriage? Sounds simple, but think about it because there's a profound truth hidden in there. With that, let me pray. God, we thank you for the time this morning, for the truth of your word. And God, we are so grateful for the covenant promise that you have made to us, your bride, the church, of a self-sacrificing, fully committed, truly proven covenant kind of love. And I pray that we would see that, especially as husbands and wives, and we would model our marriages to your example. 
And may we live that to the fullest, to the praise and glory of your name, which you designed to be lifted high above all other names through this image of what is portrayed within our marriages. And if we're not there, I pray that we have full faith and assurance that it is your desire and ability to make things new, to bring beauty from ashes, to redeem what has been broken. And you are capable if you are invited in. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.